singularity. Hello, my name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One on One. Today, my guest on the show will be Jonathan Mugan. Jonathan is the author of an interesting new book titled The Curiosity Cycle Preparing Your Child for the Ongoing Technological uh, Explosion. So, hi, Jonathan, and thank you very much for coming on the show today. Oh, thanks for having me. Fantastic. So, Jonathan, let me begin our conversation here today with the first question, which is, uh, or probably before the first question, let me ask you to introduce yourself for those of our viewers and listeners who may not be familiar with you. Sure. So, uh, my undergraduate degree is in psychology, and... Uh, I can tell you a little bit about how I came to be where I am. So I was in psychology. I wanted to understand the way the human brain worked. I went to study a Bachelor of Arts, but I became a little disillusioned because it just seemed like we were just talking about different people's ideas about how the brain worked. And so I started to get the impression that nobody really knew. And so I just went ahead and got a regular job um, doing computer programming after, after graduation. But then in my mid-20s, I kind of had a, a little bit of an epiphany. I was thinking about how I had no idea what is in shampoo. I was thinking, I was looking at my shampoo bottle, and I realized, looking at the ingredients, that I knew nothing about what was in it. I didn't understand it at all. And I realized that I had ignored half of human knowledge by studying a Bachelor of Arts instead of a Bachelor of Science. I was more interested in the in the soft side of things. And I had always thought the hard side of things wasn't quite so enlightening. And so, but then realizing that I had been missing half of, of humanity's knowledge, I realized I needed to go back to school to do that. So I went back and got my first, my master's in computer science, um, and then on to get my PhD. And I chose computer science because I was already working with computers. And my original goal of understanding the way the brain works, um, it seemed like artificial intelligence was a great marriage of that goal to understand the brain and of the current computer work I was doing. So uh, I went and got my PhD in computer science from UT Austin. My thesis was about how can you teach robots to learn about the world in the same way that human children do through undirected exploration. Uh, after that, I, I did a postdoc at Carnegie Mellon University, and uh, my wife did not want to move out of Austin, so we, uh, I came back to Austin, and uh, I've been working at a company called 21CT, where we do uh, research and development for the government, uh, artificial intelligence and uh, machine learning type stuff, and uh, here I am. Fantastic. So, so you have a fascinating sort of personal journey from the soft end of things, as you put it arts and science, I mean arts, and then into the harder end of things or the other half of human knowledge, namely science. And then somehow you made the jump again from computer science into child education, didn't you? Although that wasn't too much of a jump. So I wanted to use computers, I wanted to use what we know about uh, psychology or human development to build smart computers. And so since I had the psychology background, it was kind of a natural way to marry those things. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your book, The 
Curiosity Cycle, which I enjo enjoyed very much and, and recommended highly. So let's start with the first question here. Who is the book intended for? The book is intended for parents of children, of young children. So parents who are interested in making their children more intellectually curious, but aren't quite sure how to go about stimulating that curiosity in their children. Mm -hmm. Then what about those of us who don't have children? Do we have something to learn from your book? I, I would hope so. So there, the book is in three parts. The first part is the curiosity cycle itself, which is stems from my thesis work on the developmental robotics, which was a robot can first find some feature in the environment, such as a, like a crown molding in a house. And once it can find that feature, it can start to build a model around that environment or around that feature. So maybe the fact that a tree has flat leaves means it'll lose its leaves in the winter. And then once it has a model, it can use that model to start looking at the environment, start testing that model. And so it could say, oh, yeah, it turns out most flat leaf trees do lizard leaves in the winter, but there's this one tree that doesn't. And what kind of tree is that? Oh, that's a live oak tree. Oh, that's odd. And so from there, your curiosity kind of expands out as your knowledge expands out. And I, and that was the, the driving idea behind the learning robot. Um, and that's the first part of the book. The second part of the book stems more from once you have some set of knowledge, this knowledge is not in the ether, it's embodied in the human brain, which is an organ with limitations. And so these limitations manifest themselves in many cognitive biases and, and different ways of seeing the world. So the second part of the book is, is how you can teach your children or how, if you're interested, how you can start to overcome the, some of these cognitive biases and see the world in a, in a more pure way. And then the part three of the book is really more the, now that we have a, a curiosity, we know we're embodied in a brain, we have to look at the, the societal impact of the way technology is changing everything around us, the job market and, and the way we live our lives. And so it's how you can prepare your child and yourself for this changing world. And so I talk a little bit about how computers think and um, about how the way that the fact that computers are now doing a lot of the thinking in our environment changes our environment and how you can be ready for it. Yeah, and, and let me say that as a sort of a child that never actually grew up myself, I have to admit that I think that even though I'm not a parent, I did learn a few things from your book uh, about our cognitive biases and about things that I should avoid and, avoid and or should learn about or should be uh, more cognizant about in my own behavior and the way I perceive the world and, and, and also some tips about how I should approach learning in a more effective way. Oh, great. That, 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 that's beautiful. But, but let me ask you this. So is building robots really that similar to educating young children? Uh, so, of course not. However, if we're going to build smart robots, not the brittle things that we have now, they have to have a grounded understanding of their environment. And so by grounded, the way you get a grounded understanding is by actively going out in the world and playing with things. Because if you're told that things fall, that's different from losing a grip on something and seeing it fall to the floor and break. There's, there's way too many things in the world to, to simply tell them all to a robot. So a robot has to go out and learn. 
Now that learning algorithm may not be exactly the same um, as the human algorithm. You can take inspiration, but the the active exploration and the embodiment are um, are are things they have in common. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So so let's focus a little bit more and, and get a little deeper into your book. And let's let's begin with your title here. So why use the word curiosity in your title? Why not, for example, something like intelligence? Yeah, so I wanted to avoid, we have this in, in our country and maybe in the world, this idea that we want our kids to be smarter and more successful. And Because everybody's chasing, you know, points on the SAT or, or, or the, the test for, for uh, you know, intelligence and the higher your score, the better off you are. And you don't kind of approach it from that way. That's right. And, and I, what I'm looking for is, is there's two things. One is I, I want, see, curiosity brings a fulfillment in life that you can't find by chasing test scores. And so I wanted to, to, to reach a little higher to the goal. And second, I want to instill an intelligence in, in my children that I, I want to teach other people to instill intelligence in their children that is broader than test scores. We've all known a lot of people who are able to compute things and come up with an answer just like that, but often these answers are beside the point. And, and what I'm trying to get at is a more subtle intelligence, something that goes beneath the surface of always answering the question given. Mm-hmm. And then the other key word in the title, of course, is cycle. Why is it a cycle? Yeah, so it's a cycle because once you learn a new feature of the environment, like that trees lose their leaves in the fall or that crown moldings exist in buildings, that allows you to go to the next step, which is to use that feature to build a model. And so leaves falling, okay, leaves fall from trees that are flat leaves, okay, or Buildings that have crown moldings are likely to be old or fancy. And so you have a model, and then that's the next step. And then after you have that model, you can start to test it. And so testing that the model that leaves trees and leaves in the fall tells, shows you exceptions. So sometimes the model's wrong, and that's the beauty, because what you're striving for are these models that aren't quite complete. And, and all models aren't complete. But... If a model's not quite complete, that's what really triggers the curiosity because it makes you understand, well, why is it that this model is that way? Why is it that some buildings have crown moldings, but they're not that nice? These exceptions are really trigger you to go deeper. And so once you've triggered, been triggered to go deeper, you often learn new features of the environment that you can learn to build, use to build even more models, and then it cycles around in the cycle that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and to me, it also speaks to the point that Perhaps we would never reach that perfect model, which accounts for everything, but it's a sort of an ongoing process where we kind of come up with a better model and then we discover a new weakness and then a little better and then a new weakness and then a little better and it kind of keeps going. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So so let me ask you, what's the impact that you're trying to accomplish with publishing a book like that? Well, I'm, I'm trying to reach a, um, a set of parents out there in the world who, who want to help their child but don't quite know how. So I've noticed that a lot of, um, a lot of people in PhD programs and people who have who've gotten really far in life have parents who've gotten really far in life and have been really successful. And I think it's because those parents are able to teach 
beyond what is taught in the classroom. They're able to get to some subtle thing about teaching children how to think. And so my hope is that if there's a, a set of motivated parents out there who aren't quite sure where to begin, they don't have a, a PhD or they don't have a, a, a huge uh, background in, in education, they're not teachers themselves, they're not quite sure where to begin, then this book would be a great place for them. Uh, one way to look at it is, is I'm writing it for who my parents were 30 years ago. Because my parents definitely, they were smart people and they were educated, but they didn't quite know how to really spark my curiosity. And so um, it, it's, it's written for people out there who are like that. Mm -hmm. And the, the reverse part of that coin then would be, what was the impact of writing that book on your own life, on the way that you approach teaching your own children, perhaps, or, or the way you perceive that relationship or anything? Yeah, I don't know if it's had a, a big impact. It, it's, I mean, the, I was thinking about the book all during my PhD thesis, and then during that time, uh, my children were born. And so I'm always, you know, testing out new ideas on them and uh, using them, using interaction with them as inspiration, because I didn't want the book to come across as clinical. I wanted the book to come across as, hey, I know the literature and developmental psychology, and I've been trying these things at home. And, and here's what works for me, and, and based on the literature and my experience, it's likely to work for you. Um, I don't know if it's had a big impact. It, it is funny, though, when, when my, wife, my wife reads parts of it, she says, yeah, this is just the stuff you're always talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, tell us a little more about your kids. How old are they? Yeah, so my oldest is 10. Uh, he's a boy, and then I have a 7-year-old boy and a 4-year-old daughter. Fantastic. So it's a, it's a big family. <laughs> yeah, there's kids everywhere. I mean, you open up a closet, there's a couple kids in there. I mean, it's just everywhere. <laughs> Maybe that's why me and my wife are kind of staying away. But <laughs> uh, what was perhaps the most surprising thing? Was there something like really surprising that you learned in that process of writing that book and being a parent or becoming a parent at the same time? Oh, something that didn't you totally didn't expect. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. So before I was a parent, I didn't know what to expect. And I, I came to realize that you can't know that people tell you, but it doesn't really mean anything. You, you know, it's kind of like the robot. You have to learn through experience. And so I, I, I likened it to being, uh, you know, those huge water parks they have and you go to the top of a slide and you're really scared and you, you've never done it before. And you don't know what to expect, so you just jump in, and then the slide takes care of everything else. <laughs> That's kind of how I see how I see parenting. And once you're on, you can't get off. No, there's no getting off, and there's really <laughs> no time to think about it. You're just going down. Yeah. Yeah, that's. I think that's a good metaphor. Uh, what tips would you like to give to our audience then for teaching their kids in in the most effective uh, manner? Yeah, so um, one, one great tip is don't, um, oh, I don't know how great it is, but one tip that I like is, is don't worry about teaching your child too much. So if there's this thing, though, a concept I like to call placeholders. And so a lot of times as parents, what we'll do is we'll try to dumb everything down. No, that's not true. We should dumb things down. We should teach things in, in concepts that they have, but we'll often avoid whole concepts altogether because we think that kids can't understand it. 
and to a large degree, that's true. Something like the banking system or life on other planets or, or things like that. The kids can't necessarily understand the Drake equation, but they can understand the 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 some level. They can they can start to have placeholders or you know Maxwell's equations for how light moves. They they can't understand that, but they can understand that maybe light can be two things at once, a particle and a wave, and they don't quite understand why, but it it, it plants a seed. And so once then, even if they don't understand it while you're explaining it at that time. That seed being planted gives a place to put all new information that comes in. And so one fascinating thing that I've noticed about, um, about humanity is when we don't understand something, we tend to ignore it. And even more, we don't even know we're ignoring it. So, so like before you learn about different types of trees, you just look out and see trees. And you just see trees, you don't really realize that you don't know what kinds of trees they are. But then maybe you learn about trees and come back to the same, same place 20 years later, and you're like, those aren't just trees. That's a that's a live oak. That's a cedar elm. The, the landscape looks completely different. And so, the big thing about raising intellectually curious children is giving them little pieces that they can then latch on new information to as it comes in. And and that's done by constantly pointing out things in the environment and also constantly, instead of teaching them the way things work, try to teach it from a problem perspective. So instead of teaching why, why we have banks, teach them the problem of, well, imagine that somebody wants to do something like plant crops, but they don't have the money to buy the seed. Well, what should they do? They could borrow from a friend, but maybe they can't find a friend who has that certain amount of money. And then imagine there's someone else across town, they don't know each other, and this person has extra money doesn't want to put it in the mattress, wants it to wants it to, to grow in some sense. So what how could they meet each other? And then you say, oh, okay. So that the idea of a bank is the able the ability to bring these two people together. Um, and then now you understand this idea of banking not from someone just told you it's a place for deposit money. You understand the problem it's solving and that gives you a deeper understanding. Mm -hmm. And and what then are some of the most common mistakes that people should avoid? Oh, yeah. So I mentioned the one of just avoiding subjects um, because you think they're too complicated. Um, yeah, and I mentioned the um, just explaining how things work. You, you don't want to, I mean, explaining how things work is great, but you want to get underneath and explain why they work that way. Um, and... Uh, and I imagine most of, of your viewers know the, the, the more common ones. It's, it's amazing how um, the literature just keeps coming out. The more you talk to kids, the smarter they get. They really need that, that interaction. Um, and positive instead of negative, the, you know, the idea of attachment parenting, that um, you have a relationship with the child that's not authoritarian. You're not, you're not the... You know, the 1950s dad who says this is exactly how things are going to be and we're not going to have any discussion about it because it turns out that this discussion, this back and forth with your kids, this constant negotiation that really drives you mad is really great for the kids because it teaches them how to navigate the adult world and not just take what's given to them. Mm -hmm. In fact, you actually go to some length to stress the fact that, you know, the, the key here, as you say on page, I think, page uh, 10, Roman 10 or X, the ability to learn will be more important than intelligence itself. 
right? Yeah. You, you keep stressing that element that it's the, the learning process, not per se what we traditionally refer to as intelligence. That is to say, to the fact, the ability to regurgitate facts or numbers or names or things like that. That's right. And, and especially, in, and you mentioned uh, things to avoid, like one classic thing is you're, they say you shouldn't, uh, there's some literature cited in the book, that you shouldn't tell children they're smart. By continually telling the child he or she is smart, what that does is it makes a child afraid of failure. Because imagine a child is now given a, a tough math problem, the child sees other people solving it, and this child can say, well, I can struggle with this problem and maybe not solve it, and then that would disprove the idea that I'm smart, at least in my mind. And so I'm a smart person. The easiest thing for me to do is just not try or, or imply that it, it's not important or it doesn't matter. So what you want to instill in your child is practice, 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 that you get good at things not by having an innate ability, but by really applying yourself and trying hard and failing and keeping going. And it's that perseverance that that really matters, that that teaches you to, to not give up. Yeah, I think adults can benefit from that, certainly, too. <laughs> yeah. Now... Now, let me ask you this, because we still haven't really touched that much on technology. Where does technology fit within that whole picture here? Yeah, so we, we talked about, um, you mentioned how I, I emphasized learning over innate intelligence or learning over even just knowing things. And technology is doing a few things. So one thing it's doing is it's changing our world so fast. And so it used to be a long time ago, people went to school, then they had a job. And, and so they, where they use what they learned and maybe learned a few new things along the way. But now you have to continually in the workforce reinvent yourself, reinvent what you're doing, because the things you were doing 10 years ago, chances are they're obsolete. And if you don't have that, um, if you don't have that mentality that you have to constantly be learning, what will happen is you'll get out of school and you'll. You'll be successful for five or ten years, and then you'll you'll notice you're on the decline. It's because everyone's moved on to the next thing, and this this rapid change is coming from technology. In addition, we also have. It used to be important to know facts and know how they fit together, and it's now more important to know broad, comprehensive understandings of models because the facts can all be looked up on Google. But it doesn't mean that you don't need education. You still need to know what questions to ask. And if you, if you don't know anything about an, an area, you don't know what questions to ask. But the, the emphasis is on understanding the deep underlying principles so you can ask the right questions and continue to evolve. Yeah, not long ago I wrote an article uh, saying something like, the future belongs to those who ask the right questions or something like that. Oh, um, I have to look for it, but uh, it's been a while. But but how would, let's say, for example, robotics and artificial intelligence change uh, the, the importance of learning and, and sort of the world in which your children would grow up and, and we would hopefully be still trying there to to survive and prosper? How would that change everything? And, and what's the, the lesson that, both our kids and us can take along with us in a world where machines will be smarter than us, probably. 
Yeah, okay. Uh, there's a lot there you might have to prod me. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so one thing is that the relatively rote jobs where you, you take your paper, you, you check your, your things and you move it on, that kind of paper shuffling, those jobs can all be done by computer. The computers, as they get smarter, can do more and more of that. And so we are still smarter than computers in terms of creativity, um, social interaction, um, broad picture thinking. And so you, in order to stay ahead of the computers, it's, it's, it's necessary to have those abilities. And one fascinating thing that's happening, it's fascinating that, and actually my biggest fear about technology is that it's changing the labor market. So it's now, as an owner of a company, it's much easier to use technology instead of human workers. And so what that does is it puts downward pressure on wages and gives more profit to the people who own the company and less profit or less money to, to the workers. And so it's, um, it's, it's going to be a little uh, precarious, I think, in the next 100 years, how we're going to, as this continues to unfold, how we're going to do that. Um, because we're probably going to need some sort of stipend or something for all the people whose skills aren't strong enough or, or aren't relevant enough given, given technology. Um, yeah, I have to admit that's one of my big concerns here too because uh, I'm worried that if we reach some kind of a very substantial degree of technological unemployment, say over 60% or I don't even know what's the, 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 the proportion here, but there's a certain point after which society becomes socially explosive and, and after which revolutions occur. Uh, and, and, and those revolutions or those violent events, uh, social upheaval, uh, etc., they can kind of destroy all the progress that we have managed to build. So it would be a very dangerous, very tricky period to navigate. And, and, and I, to tell you the truth, I myself don't know exactly how we would navigate it or, or what to tell children who are growing up now, what's the best way to approach it? Yeah, and, and we can't, I mean, I mentioned the stipend idea, but it's going to have to be more than that because humans, we have a, we have a drive to not only survive and, and be able to eat, but to, to feel like we matter, to, to play. Yeah. I think of it in terms of we all have a game that we want to play. And so a lot of us now, we climb the corporate ladder or, we, you know, even academics, you, you're, you're, you're sending out papers, we, you know, or, or sports on the weekend. We all want... To, to strive to compete and be relevant. And, and so whatever we do as a society, it's going to have to make sure that people are more than just fed. They're going to have to feel like they're an important part and they can still fulfill their... their... Yeah, and the, 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 the point that you bring up about some kind of a government stipend or uh, program uh, is from top down. But what about from the bottom up? What about from what, what do we personally do about this how how do you tell your children to prepare for that wor world because th the chances are uh it would be much tougher for them to find a a good job uh and earn a living than it was for us for our generation just yeah. like i think it was tougher for us than it than it was for our parents generation yeah and, and so i think a lot of that is going to come to being able to create fascinating, intriguing, and useful artifacts. So so you create this podcast kind of out of 
just out of your mind, you created this podcast because it's interesting to you. And we're all going to need, as the society transforms, to find that thing that, that we love. And so I created the book. Um, you know, it may be that you are really interested in graphic arts. You could create arts. You could create a business. We're all going to need to focus less on working for a living 40 hours a week and then having leisure time to making our passion our central um, way of contributing to society. And so... Um, one thing that I strive or stress with my children is to make sure that you are along the way in your education, you're creating artifacts, things that can stay around that can kind of show what you've done and what you can do. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, I think that sounds about right. I, I, to tell you the truth myself, I'm not quite sure yet if I'm able to actually accomplish that goal with my sort of podcast work for the last four or five years, but but the, the reality is I haven't come up with anything better so far. So, and, and I do love it. So, uh, so I can't really stop doing it either. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan, let me ask you, where can people find more about you and your work? If yeah. they're interested to, to, to find more. Yeah. So I have, um, I have an, an unusual name, Jonathan Mugan, M-U-G-A-N, which is lucky in, in the Google world because you can just yes. type the name in the Google and just about everything is about me just because there aren't any other Jonathan Mugans that I know of. There's a John Mugan. Or you can go to jonathanmugan.com and that's where I have my publications and links to the book. Fantastic. So we've been talking here for about half an hour or so today and I'd like to ask you, what would you like to be the final message that I, that our audience takes away from our conversation with you today? What's the most important thing? Yeah, I, I don't know if it's the central thing, but it, it's an interesting thing. It's that don't be afraid to put intellectual ideas on your shelf, meaning on not on the shelf in the sense of putting them away, but on the shelf in terms of the things you keep around. Because by having some small sliver of an idea or a concept that you hear somewhere, it can then start to collect friends. It, it finds relationships. And instead of these things just flying over your head, for years I never saw crombovings at all, even though they were on my retina all the time, until my wife pointed it out to me. And then suddenly I see them everywhere. And so then I am able to associate other things with them. Or there were whole areas of the human knowledge that I ignored for half my life. You know, all the science and technology. And so all these times people were talking about that, I would just kind of tune out. And so I should have instead said, okay, well, maybe I'm not fascinated by that right now, but I should pay attention and accumulate the concepts I can so that all of that stimulus that comes in to my brain is not wasted and doesn't flow out the other end. Mm -hmm. But do you not think there was also a lot of benefit from you starting in the arts? and sort of having this kind of the complete circle, if you will, right? Yeah, yeah, it's, so, it's, so it's, we often... Because um... I have lots of friends who are engineers, for example, who are never, ever interested in philosophy or the arts or anything outside of engineering, per se. Yeah, and so in that sense, it's a little lucky because if I'm in the sciences now, I came from an unusual place. And so that gives me, it's almost like a, a left-handed soccer player or left-footed soccer player. It's a little unusual, and so it can give you a, a little um, edge now and then. 
Um, but yeah, it, it, we we want to we want to find our niche. We want to stay there because we're comfortable. Um, but if you pay attention, little things will, will start to be helpful when you don't always think they will. Jonathan Mugan, thank you very much for being with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed talking to you.